This morning we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 17 through the end of the chapter. I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to preach this morning while Jim is away. Uh, please continue to pray for he and his family. Uh, I think they'll be returning either tonight or tomorrow uh, from spring break vacation. Um, but Jim did give me a tough passage, so I would appreciate your prayers. Uh, even uh, throughout the sermon, uh, please pray for me. Uh, but before we read the scripture and get started, I wanted to ask you a question, maybe to help you get thinking a little bit more about the context here. Have you ever been asked for a church recommendation? You know, a friend says, hey, I'm, I'm going to Bristol. I'm gonna be in Bristol for the week, and uh, I'll be there over a Sunday. I'd, What's a good church to go to? Uh, many of you have been asked. Sometimes that's an easy question to answer, and sometimes it's not. Can you imagine what that question would have been like for the Apostle Paul if somebody said, hey, Paul, uh, we're traveling through Corinth, and we'll be there uh, for a week or two. What's a good church to go to in Corinth? Can you imagine Paul saying perhaps, oh, yeah, there's... There's a church in Corinth, and there's great giftedness amongst the people there. They, uh, there's a lot of examples of radically changed lives. I mean, some of those folks used to be very wild and wicked and, and pagan in their life, and they've been converted and changed. Uh, God has many people in that city. He's told me so himself. But um, the church at Corinth has some pretty serious problems, too. There's a lot of pride there. There's a lot of division over who to follow. There's some folks who are even promoting sexual immorality as though that was an example of Christian liberty. There's an unwillingness by many of them to sacrifice their own rights in order to love others. But most serious of all is the way they celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I imagine from this text that what Paul would say is this. What they do with the Lord's Supper is so bad, uh, you'd be better off not to go. I can't recommend that you go and worship with this congregation. Those are hard words, aren't they? Um, but that's what our text has. You know, many times uh, I've been tempted to think, maybe some of you have as well, oh, if, if we could just be back in the days of the early church, wasn't it wonderful? You know, we read of the miracles, we read of thousands being converted, uh, we read of how they, they, nobody considered their possessions their own, they shared them gladly, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and prayer, and sometimes we think, wouldn't that have been glorious? Uh, let me remind you, the church then was full of sinners, just like the church now is full of sinners. And they had problems. They had difficulties. God, in his kindness, uh, inspired the New Testament to address those very problems. And so it helps address our problems today, too. Please don't think it would have been better to be a Christian back then. At whatever time we live, there's always the challenge. Sinful people especially the one we look at in the mirror each morning. But God has good counsel for us. This is his word, his book. It speaks to our lives. So would you stand together with me as we read what God says 
uh, to the church at Corinth through the Apostle Paul. And be thinking, uh, not only as I'm reading the text, but also throughout the sermon, what would God say to us and to our church, Christ Community Church in 2021? Uh, what is God saying to us? Let me pray, and then I'll read. Father, please help us. Uh, we are thankful for your word. Uh, we acknowledge that you are the one who has breathed it out, that it's profitable for us. Um, Father, we need the help of your Holy Spirit to understand it. Uh, we need the help of your Holy Spirit to agree with it. We need the help of your Spirit uh, so that it would be applied to our lives. And so, Father, we ask, please help us. And Father, I pray that you would help me. If there's anything that I say that is not accurate with your word, would you strike it from our minds? Help us to forget it quickly. Uh, but Father, for, for what does agree with your word, would you impress it on our hearts? And would you help us um, to love you more as a result of hearing from you? So, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Apostle Paul uh, writing to the church at Corinth. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. 
About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of God. Thanks be to you. Please be seated. Last week, uh, Jim had a tough passage as he did the first part of chapter 11, but at least Paul started by saying, there are some things I can commend about you. Uh, Our passage this morning doesn't contain those words. (laughs) All Paul says is, I cannot commend you. When you get together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. You say you're getting together for the Lord's Supper, but what you are doing is not the Lord's Supper. And later in the text, he says, your disobedience in this is so serious that many of you are sick and some have died. This is a hard passage. These are stern words. There is good news later. There is good news here. Um, But first, we have to expose what's wrong. Then we get to the healing. Uh, That's the way that Scripture works. I want you to see from this passage that uh, Paul feels so so strongly about this. He's, He's offended by the way that these believers are sinning against the Lord Jesus and his people. He tells them, your sinful pride is so pervasive and wicked that it has infiltrated and contaminated even what is supposed to be a celebration of Jesus' payment for that sin. You you can almost hear Paul saying, what are you doing? Do you not realize? You know, the sad thing is that sin is so perverse and wicked that um, kind of raises its ugly head even in the midst of things that are supposed to point to what Jesus has done to remove our guilt, to remove the power of sin over us. Again, hard words, but we need them. A couple general observations about uh, the text, things that we won't, uh, I won't get into much, but I do want to observe. First of all, the word worship is not used in this passage, but I think five times it says, when you come together, And a couple of those times, it even says, when you come together as a church. So Paul is talking about worship. It's just that he's focusing in on a particular aspect of worship, and that is the Lord's Supper. Uh, So that's what I'll be focusing in on as well. Another general observation about the text is that uh, this passage comes in that part of the letter where Paul seems to be building more and more of a, a case. It's almost like he's coming to the the ultimate declaration of the problem at the Corinthian church. And that problem is this. You're not exercising biblical love for God and you're not exercising biblical love for each other. Everything that you're doing is a witness against that. And as Jim has, I think, wisely pointed out, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, we all think of it as a very beautiful, wonderful, poetic description of love. And it is, but it's also a rebuke. Here's what love looks like, what you have not been doing. And so even in this text, I think underlying is this theme of how can you say you love Jesus and how can you say you love his people when you're observing the Lord's Supper the way you are? What you're doing doesn't even count as the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper. A third general observation about this text 
is about the purpose of rebuke and discipline in the life of a believer. None of us like to be corrected. <laughs> None of us like to be told we're wrong about something. None of us like to have our sin pointed out. But the Bible teaches that rebuke is actually a sign of love. It's a sign of love when it's motivated by a desire to honor God and a genuine care for the other person. It's following in the footsteps of Jesus who said to one of the churches in Revelation to whom he sent a letter, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So repent, therefore. Paul, in this passage, is rebuking the Corinthians. And as he does that, he is doing it because he loves them. He wants what is best for them. He wants a change in their behavior. He wants a change in their thinking that will enable them to know more joy in the Lord and more joy in the Lord's people. And that's my desire for us today, too, because even we have things to learn from this passage. Now, my, my outline this morning, I'm, I'm going to try to follow what uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy about what Scripture is. Uh, scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so the outline is pretty brief. It's rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness. That's what we see Paul doing in this text. His first part is to rebuke them. And that rebuke is found in verses 17 through 22. Paul says, You are taking what should be a reminder of the love and sacrifice of Christ, and you're turning it into a time of self-centered indulgence, division. You're despising your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're humiliating those who are poor. How does he say it? Well, verse 17. When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Can I remind you and remind myself that we never remain neutral when we come together for worship? Every time we worship, we either leave with a, a growing love and awe for God or a greater hardening of our heart. You, you can't leave neutral. It's impossible because when we worship, we're confronted with a holy God. That should make our hearts more tender. It should make our longing more and more to, to love and serve and please him. Um, but if we go away unchanged, uh, that's the indication of a hard heart. It seems to me from reading this text, uh, these Corinthians, their, their hearts have gotten pretty hard. The very thing that is to remind them of what Jesus did to pay the price for their sin, they're taking it and using it as an occasion for selfishness, for physical pleasure, for creating a, a division and a distinction between those who have much and those who don't have much. Remember, in this early church, there were all kinds of people. There were people who were wealthy who had become Christians. There were people who were very poor. There were those who were masters. There were those who were servants. When they would gather together uh, for worship, apparently there was this, uh, you may have heard of this before, the love feast, 
where they would get together and have an actual meal. And they would combine that with celebrating the Lord's Supper and they would say that they were observing the Lord's Supper. In that day and time, uh, the, these worship services were mostly held in a house. Uh, in that house, there would be a, a, a room in the center that was big enough for maybe 15 people to, to sit around a table and enjoy a meal together. And it was customary when people would have feasts and, and gatherings, the most important people would get to be in that inner room. And those who came late or those who weren't as wealthy, they'd be in an outer room. And they'd get the leftovers, if there were any. Often, those would have been the people who were servants and who worked long hours. And they weren't able to be prompt like somebody who was wealthy and wasn't having to be a servant in someone's home. And so, apparently, typically, in the early church and here in Corinth, what they were doing is they would gather in a home. The wealthiest would get there first. And even in the, the Greek language of these verses, it indicates they would hurry up and eat. And those who didn't have much, who were expecting to share in what was brought, they were on the outside. They were going hungry. Paul says, how, how can you do this and call it a love feast? You're not loving anyone but yourself. You're dividing people. The word for division here in these verses means to tear apart. The word for faction means the reason for tearing apart. There are times when it is reasonable to tear away from people. If someone claims to be a Christian and they're proclaiming what is untrue, we, we do want to separate from that. But that's not what's happening here. The separation is because they, they don't love and care for each other and there's partiality. The wealthy are looking down on the poor this time when they should be celebrating what Jesus has done for them, there is feasting and drunkenness by some and there is scarcity and pain by others. Paul is upset. Can you imagine if you lived in that day and time in the inner room where people who were stuffed and getting drunk and you're in the outer room and there's nothing for you? What would that portray about the love of Christ? What would that portray about the body of Christ, about brothers and sisters in Christ? That's why Paul is so upset about this. What you are doing is showing a, an attitude of despising the church. You despise the body of Christ as you humiliate the poor. How can you call this worship? It's a false portrayal of the body of Christ. Now think back to chapter 10, verses 16 through 18, where Paul said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The, the bread that we break, is, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Paul was saying that when we worship the the things that we use to symbolize truths about Christ, they, in a sense, become that thing. The bread that we use in the Lord's Supper, it's, it's still bread. It doesn't mystically become the body of Christ, but it represents the body of Christ. And here these Corinthian Christians were, 
taking these things that represented the sacrifice of Jesus and is purchasing a people to be his very own with his own blood. They were taking that and using it to say, I'm better than you. I should have all my physical needs met. I don't need to care about you. Jesus is being sinned against, is what Paul is saying, as you sin against his people. That's why he was so upset. But he moves on then to correction in verses 23 through 29. Paul says, I I need to remind you what this is really about, what we're really doing. He says, if you don't listen to me, you need to understand you're failing to listen to Jesus. I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. This is not something that Paul made up. It's not something that the apostles got together and said, hey, here would be a good idea for a way that we can regularly remember what Jesus did when he went to the cross and died for us. It wasn't man's idea. Jesus is the one who set it up. Jesus is the one who said what it signified. Paul says, Jesus himself told me, and I told you, I've delivered this to you. What was it that Paul delivered to them? It's the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed. You need to stop right there. Think about the context. We read over those words so lightly almost uncaringly. Think back to that night described in John chapter 13. when Jesus knew he was going to the cross. He knew the time had come for him to return to the Father. He knew that he was going to be betrayed. He knew that this suffering that he was about to undergo was more horrible than he could even imagine. It wouldn't be many hours from this when he and 11 of the disciples would be walking in the garden And when he would be so overwhelmed by the thought of what was about to happen that he, sometimes we think he just knelt down and prayed. Um, The scripture indicates he violently went down. He fell on his face as he considered what he was about to suffer. And he even prayed, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. This same Jesus who knew that all of this was taking place within the next few hours, this same Jesus, having loved his disciples, he loved them to the max. And he took off his robe and he washed their feet, even the one who would betray him. Can you imagine Jesus kneeling before Judas, washing his filthy feet, knowing that those same feet were very soon going to carry him to the religious leaders who would pay 30 pieces of silver for Jesus. Um, It was on the night when he was betrayed. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Paul wants to remind the Corinthians the significance of the Lord's Supper. Here's the context. This is when it took place. It was the night in which he was betrayed. And on that night, Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The disciples didn't fully understand, did they? They were still learning. 
But by this time in the life of the church, the apostles had been preaching and teaching for years. The Corinthian believers should have understood the significance of what Jesus said and did on that night. The significance of the bread, the significance of what it represented. Passover pointed back to God's deliverance of his people from physical slavery and death. Jesus came as the one who would carry out the new covenant, who would shed his own blood, who would offer himself up as the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. This wasn't going to be just a symbolic slaying. This was going to be the real thing. Paul is telling the Corinthian believers, remember, remember why we have this sacrament. After supper, Jesus in like manner took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Just like the bread, it represents more than what it is. <laughs> it's the cup of the new covenant. It's a reminder that Jesus would drink the cup of God's wrath that was due to us for our sins, and he would drink it all the way down so that he could give to us the cup of blessing, the cup of forgiveness, the cup of restoration and reconciliation with his Holy Father. Uh, wine was not given here by Jesus just to gladden the heart of man, like the psalmist says in Psalm 104. Here it was to represent his sacrifice. Remember that promise that God made to Abraham centuries and centuries before when God promised how he would bless Abraham and he made a covenant with Abraham and he caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep and he cut animals and laid the halves down on the ground and then in his sleep, God gave Abraham a vision and he was able to see a smoking torch, a pot, pass through the pieces. The significance being that God said, I'm establishing this covenant and if I don't keep it, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And then for Jesus to come and pay the price for the covenant being broken, Paul is saying, think about what you are doing When we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper, it is such good news for us. It came at such a great cost for Jesus. And so to abuse the Lord's Supper is to abuse Jesus. That's what Paul is telling the Corinthian believers as he reminds them who he corrects them. He, who, who is it who came up with this? Who is it that gives us instruction? How are we supposed to celebrate don't make light of Jesus' sacrifice. That's what Paul is telling them. Before we go further, though, we, we, we need to ask a question, how this applies to us. We don't have love feasts, do we? Oh, I, I miss our fellowship dinners. That's a wonderful time. But that's not a part of our worship, even when we do it. So we, we don't, we're not guilty of this, are we? We may not be guilty of it in the way that the Corinthian believers were, but because of the emphasis that Paul makes on remembering the sacrifice of Jesus and remembering how that purchased all of his people and how we are connected to each other, it does bring to mind the question, 
as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, are we harboring in our heart any bitterness towards a brother or sister in Christ? Do we have a critical spirit towards a brother or sister in Christ? Do we despise a brother in Christ because they have less wealth than we do or less possessions? We don't stuff ourselves and get drunk while others go hungry. But in our heart, do we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? As we have opportunity, do we serve our brothers and sisters in Christ? It's part of what the Lord's Supper is for, to remind us of what Jesus did for his people. Yes, what he did for us individually, but also what he did for his people. And he gave his own life. Do we say to a brother or sister in need, go be warmed and filled without doing anything to meet their needs? If we do, then as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, there's a discontinuity between what we're saying by our presence and how we're living our lives. I don't want you to think there's no hope. There is hope, even in this passage, even as Paul rebukes and corrects. He does give training in righteousness. He does give us hope. We find that in the verses that at first may sound like just more condemnation, so hang in there with me. But look at verse 31. Excuse me, before I go there, uh, just another reminder how serious this is. If we fail to observe the Lord's Supper correctly, Paul says that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That doesn't mean that every time somebody's sick or ill or dies that we should right away say, oh, I bet they weren't observing the Lord's Supper right. That's not what Paul is saying. For this particular time, this particular context, with Paul's insight from God, he knew what was going on in Corinth. The reality is there were difficult, painful, hurtful things that were being experienced by the people who professed to know and love Jesus because of the way that they were failing to observe the Lord's Supper correctly. So it is important. It's important for us to think about. And that's where the hope comes in. Verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. One commentator interprets uh, judging ourselves truly in this way. It expresses a discriminating judgment by which the Christian rightly appreciates his own status and calling and realizes his distinctive character. The problem with self-judgment is that we are so limited in it. We, we are so eager to give ourselves excuses. We so easily despair when things are hard. We, we can't rely on ourselves for an accurate self-examination. And that's why Paul says, you don't have to please you. You have to please the Lord. And when the Lord judges us, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Please don't miss that. Judgment for unbelievers leads to condemnation. Judgment for believers leads to discipline, which is the ongoing transformation of your heart to be more and more like the heart of Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us no, no discipline is pleasant. It's hard, but don't. Don't despair when God is disciplining you. He's treating you as his son. 
his dearly loved son, and he is bringing about in you a change so that you can share in his holiness. Oh, God loves you, and he wants to spare you, and that's why he rebukes you in your sin. I'm pretty sure that of the folks who were at Corinth, there were some who professed to believe that probably were not believers. But there were those who were believers, and they needed to be rescued from continuing to celebrate the Lord's Supper in such a wicked, sinful way. God loves them, and so God sends to them through Paul a letter. Paul loves them, and Paul says, stop. Stop what you're doing because it's not right. There is hope for you as you submit to God's discipline. Don't take this as an indication that you are too far gone. See how God is disciplining you because he loves you. Part of what the Lord Jesus tells us in the Lord's Supper is I love you. And Paul's showing that here in his rebuke, in his loving rebuke. I love you, and I don't want you to continue on a path that's going to bring condemnation. So what should we do? What's God calling us to do from this text? A couple things that the Corinthians are being called to do is, for one, examine your hearts. That's where faith comes in, right? The inward examination. But there's also repentance that they're called to. Paul says, stop the love feasts. Don't do it anymore. If you're hungry, then eat at home. And when you come together, wait for one another. Paul says, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Stop what you're doing, is what Paul says. What about us? Again, we don't have the love feast, right? I mean, we're good Presbyterians. We fence the table. We're very careful. But what about our hearts? God knows our hearts. God knows when I am not loving my brother and sister, brother or sister in Christ as I should. And please don't think that I stand in front of you to say, hey, I've got this. You need to straighten up. I could not say that. Doing this study has been convicting to my own heart. Do I really love and serve all of God's people equally? There's nothing wrong with being especially close to some. We're not going to be especially close to everybody. But do we love and serve God's people equally? Do we sacrifice for others our brothers and sisters in Christ, do we sometimes do without? Are we willing uh, to lay down our lives for one another? Not just thinking, well, if a gunman broke in, yeah, I'd go tackle him. But what about in everyday small things? Do we love? Do we serve? This is what Paul is calling us to so that when we observe the Lord's Supper, what we are celebrating lines up with the rest of our life that we show that we are a part of the body of Christ. We love God's people. We serve them. We're eager for others to become a part of the body of Christ as well. So for our application, we need to repent of our pride and selfishness. We need to repent if we're partial in any way to those who are wealthy or to those who are not. Old Testament presents the, the fact you can do either way. 
You can pervert judgment for a wealthy man and you can pervert judgment for a poor man. Don't do either one. Judge with truth. We must be uh, repenting of being quick to judge others. We must repent of using our freedom in Christ in ways that hurt other believers and therefore hurt Jesus. Paul's been talking about that in this letter. There's one other thing that has been more and more on my heart as I have thought and studied about this, and I, I want to preface it by giving you a challenge. Uh, probably many of you have a Bible app on your phone or maybe on your iPad. Maybe you even have one of those old dusty things called a concordance at your house where you can look up uh, words in the Bible and find out passages where those words are used. Do a search for the one another passages in the Bible, and this week... Start reading them. Read what God says, how we are to treat one another. And ask God, as you read, to help you consider, am I doing that? Am I showing that kind of love for one another? Am I encouraging? Am I serving? Am I bearing one another's burdens? You can go on and on. There's a, I don't remember the exact number, but there's a lot of one another passages in the Scripture. That will help you examine your heart. That will help you that your life will line up with what we celebrate each Lord's Day. But there's one other thing that I need to say, and that is understanding what the Lord's Supper really means. We should be all the more eager to be in person, worshiping with God's people so that we can celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We miss out on a means of grace when we're not at worship, when we don't partake of the Lord's Supper. And you might be thinking right now, why are you telling me that? I'm here. <laughs> well, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you in your attendance. Keep on. This is a wonderful privilege every week to gather for worship and to receive grace from the preached word, from singing hymns, from the Lord's Supper, from this visible sermon of Jesus saying, I love you. We shouldn't miss out on that. I don't want to judge anyone who is absent from our services, but I do want to call and encourage and with as much love and humility as, um, as God gives me grace to have, I want to encourage those who are not with us to return and be with us. Scripture says, let us encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together we need to be with one another as we worship and as we remember what Jesus has done for us. There's a Scottish pastor by the name of Robert Bruce, and it's not Robert the Bruce. Uh, I heard Sinclair Ferguson make that distinction. This is not Robert the Bruce. It's Robert Bruce, a pastor who followed John Knox in Scotland, who said this, you don't get any different Christ or any better Christ in the Lord's Supper than you do in preaching, but you may get the same Christ better in the Lord's Supper. We need to hear God's word. We need to hear the Lord Jesus through his servants, and we need to see with our eyes a visible reminder of Jesus saying, I love you. And this is how I've proven it. Let's pray.